Evolutionists say that creation shouldn't be taught in public schools. Should creationists be lobbying to have creation taught in the science class? This is the audio podcast version of our TV show. Both of them are produced by Creation Ministries International. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. My name is Calvin Smith. And I'm Richard Fangrad. And this week we're talking about creation and public education. And the school system. Yes. yes. Well, the first thing I think we should probably clear up is this question. Should Christians want biblical creationism taught in public school science classes? And the answer is... is no. No. <laughs> no, we don't want to do that. I mean, that's, uh, that's going to be shock and awe for many people who know our ministry, yes. right? Yes, yep. Uh, why, why would but we say that? It, it's, it's pretty obvious when you think about it. We, we wouldn't want, and, and it wouldn't work, it wouldn't work. Here's the, the main reason. To, to get an atheistic or humanistic, or in any case, somebody who doesn't believe the Bible, to try to teach biblical creation, it's just not going to work. Right. It's a nice idea to have a two-model two approach, and we'll discuss that in more detail as we go on here, but it wouldn't work. Right. I mean, we wouldn't want uh, non-Christians teaching any other part of the Bible, so why the part that discusses exactly. about yeah. the creation? Um, you know, what we need to think about here is the, the difference between science, history, philosophy. I mean, these three are, are you know, um, inextricably linked together, and, and we need to understand that. And, of course, you know, CMI has, has long pointed out the difference between operational science and historical science, right? right? Yes. So operational science is what should be taught in science class because it's based on what we observed, observe in the present. It, it's it's how we think, see things uh, working today, understanding them better and things like that. But um, conclusions about how these things came to be the way they are, well, that's really of a philosophical nature. It has nothing to do with, you know, repeatable, observable, operational science. Yeah, right? It's a historical view, isn't it? Right. The, the thing is, that would put evolution in that category as well. Right. Uh, in, in the same category as creation. And of course, evolutionists reject that. Yeah. But uh, so, so what people are always discussing is, uh, what are the links to science? Why do we have this, this creation scientist and evolution scientist and so on? Uh, why are scientists referred to in that way right. uh, sometimes? It's because we have a natural tendency to, to want to know where things came from. And right. so we have, well, here's the observations, and how did they get there? We have these terms. Right. So. Well, here, here's an example we could use. Um, what you're seeing here is a schematic of uh, the marine bacterium MO1. It's got uh, seven flagella, uh, these, these motors, uh, tightly bundled in a sheath. And, of course, there's a mystery uh, when they first discovered these. You know, how could they all rotate in the same direction without interfering with each other? Well, um, a French and Japanese research team solved it using electron cryptomography. And it's kind of like, a bit like a CAT scan, but uh, with an electron microscope and, I guess, some very cold temperatures. And the researcher's uh, diagram here shows the flagella as large gear wheels with the fibrils as, small, uh, as smaller gear wheels. So you can it's see incredible. how it all works yeah, <laughs> together. Now they say because of the size, a conservative estimate puts this, swim, uh, puts this bacteria's swimming speed at 200 body lengths per second. Now if you could somehow <laughs> blow that up into a scale that we could see, that would be like a, a large dog, let's say a meter long, you know, moving at uh, 200 meters per second. You know, it would be okay. going 450 miles per hour, 720 uh, kilometers per hour. So they, they call this thing the Ferrari of bacterial motors. It's just... Uh, yeah, and we've talked about ATP synthase and some other bacterial motors on, on the smallest scale. Right. And so here's this new discovery of, yep. this, of this top end, the high-level uh, 
uh, motor, and it's, and it's completely amazing. Yeah. Now, and, interesting here, the, the uh, Wan Fang here, or uh, Ron, she describes it this way. She says, this design must be playing an essential role in the fast, smooth rotation of the flagellar apparatus that allows the rapid swimming of M01. Look at how she, she explained that, the design, right? right. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's a, that's a completely amazing discovery, this, yes. this little thing inside cells. And, and that could be taught to students just as you described it, just right. explaining the different parts and how it works or how we think it works at this point based on the observations. Right. But then the, the natural question that comes right after that is, well, how did the thing get there? How did all of those interworking parts come together? And then, then we're, in the, we're, we're moving out of science and into history. We're, we're, well, what happened in the past to get this Ferrari of bacterial motors right. that we see today? Both creation and evolution should not be taught in the science class. Right. They can both be taught in philosophy class because that's the category that both of them are in. They're beliefs right. about the past that are philosophical in nature. Now, evolutionists like to say that, no, 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 no. Evolution is scientific, but... Of course. You know, e even evolutionist Michael Roos, now he was a, a professor at philo of philosophy and zoology at the University of Guelph here in Canada, and uh, he was actually involved in some of the, uh, the trials, uh, you know, when they were talking about getting creation in, in public schools and, yes. and et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, of course, he and uh, other anti-creationists loftily dismissed, you know, the idea that uh, evolution was some kind of uh, religious, uh, you know, Thing or something like that. But uh, since that time, uh, when he wasn't in court, <laughs> he's actually gone on to say things like this. Evolution is promoted by its practitioners as more than mere science. Evolution is promulgated as an ideology, a secular religion, a full-fledged alternative to Christianity with meaning and morality. He said, I'm an ardent evolutionist and an ex-Christian, but I must admit that in this one complaint, and Mr. Gish is but one of many to make it. He's talking about Dr. Dwayne Gish, recently passed away, who was yes. a creationist. The literalists are absolutely right. Evolution is a religion. This is true of evolution in the beginning, and it's true of evolution still today. So I think he's made the, the point very clear, even it's though he, clear. <laughs> he, he said that, you know, in court, uh, no, no, it's not religious, but it is. Now, Jesus said, he who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So, you know, those seeking to secularize uh, society, they'll often claim that their position is, is, is the most reasonable to teach in public schools because it's neutral. Right? Right. It's yes. just neutral. Uh, that way everybody's represented equally. And, uh, of course, there's some, some popular um, uh, skeptics that would uh, uh, go along with that. One is Jonathan Miller. And uh, he, he's, he's actually said that, uh, you know, he, he actually rejects the label atheist because he, he just, just describes himself as a disbeliever, right? They're trying to remove himself yes, from atheism because yes. yeah. it has some bad connotations, etc. So he's and, a disbeliever. As if they don't have beliefs, right? Like right. The, uh, the unbelievers, Dawkins and, and Krauss's movie there. Uh, yeah. That's ridiculous. That yeah. It's just uh, semantic gymnastics that they're, that they're doing there. If you don't believe that there's a creator, you believe that there isn't a creator. You believe in evolution. You believe you in evolution. To, you right? have to believe in evolution. So it, it's, it, as someone who, who doesn't believe in God, he must believe that nobody plus nothing invented the universe, created the universe. Right. And there's no one to be morally uh, accountable to. 
right as there's, well. There's nothing above humans. Then then you have a morality that comes out of that. Yeah. So it's not neutral. Um, I mean, Jesus is the creator of everything, right? We, we read this in Colossians 1, 15 and sixteen. It says Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Yeah, so, and in the context there, it's referring to both things visible and invisible. All things. The, all things. The entire created universe. Yeah. Uh, in a Christian worldview, a Christian worldview, uh, uh, the origin of it is it's it's upheld by the Creator. That's that, right. That's ultimately uh, how, what upholds the universe. So if you're, if you're going to say that you're going to teach kids neutrally, you're not going to refer to God, etc. You're actually teaching them naturalism. And that's yes. far from neutral because it, it affects every aspect of your belief system. You know, how, how much more when you're talking about neutrality, when you try to apply that to cosmology or biology or geology, let alone concepts like uh, you know, ethics or morality or, or you know, anything in, in a without God context, so to speak. Yeah, and many people fail to realize the uh, the implications of accepting such a view. Right. And we've on creation.com, there's many articles about that. So, such thinking poses a threat to the very foundations on which society is built. Right. Uh, love your neighbors yourself and so on. Uh, if we're just survival mechanisms programmed to preserve our genes or pass them on to the to the next generation, can you imagine a society that believes that that's the only goal of uh, of uh, Right, like behavior based on that kind of a exactly. Uh, if if people are correct that there is no God and there's nothing other than matter and energy, then there's no such thing as good and evil. And, and uh, you know, you can just look at the the, the history of mankind, and you're going to see uh, that what uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine says is very true. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Another myth uh, popularized by many secularists is that, you know, um, evolution only, that, that kind of policy in public schools, that's the best way because it's fact-based. Right. It's yes. just based on facts. Now, I know we've talked about this a lot of times on, on, uh, on the show, um, but the fact is creationists and evolutionists have the exact same facts. We don't have different facts. And so it's really the interpretation of those facts that we're talking about here. Exactly. And that yeah. comes from a bias. Um, I was in a conversation via email one time about a, a fellow trying to explain this to him, and he said, no, no, there's no difference between operational and historical science. And so I, I said, well, let, let's just see here. Let's give two examples from history. You know, here we've got uh, Galileo, and uh, he goes to the top of Tower of Pisa, and he grabs two different sized balls, and he drops them. Well, what was he doing? He was doing repeatable, observable science. Now, right. you and I yeah. could go to the same place today, do the same experiment, get the same results as he got. Yes. It's based on repeatable, observable observation. And I said, well, there's also a man named Charles Lyell that in the past, uh, he went to Niagara Falls and tried to determine how long it had taken for Niagara Falls to, to have eroded to the point it was. So how long uh, ago did, did that, uh, you know, did it, did it start? And of course, um, he was there for less than a year to make any observations. So he asked the locals that lived there that had observed it. He said, well, how long, you know, how much erosion? And they said, well, three to four feet per year. Yeah. Well, he went back to England and he reported that one foot per year had eroded from the falls, contradicting what the eyewitness accounts had seen and, and Presumably he hadn't observed that because he hadn't been there for a year and which gave it a, a date of over 10,000 years which broke the biblical time scale which is really what his, his result was. But it's turned out that uh, we know now that Charles, uh, his was completely wrong. Yes. So see, Galileo, yes. he wasn't wrong. You can still make the observation today 
Lyell you, was doing a different type of science. Yeah, he was using historical science. You can't observe the Niagara Gorge eroding today. Right. So, yeah. you know, if, if you say, well, look, we've, we've got these facts. You yeah, know. that's right. Like the, this T-shirt here. We have the, we have the fossils. We win. It's, it's as though... As, as though this we have the fossils, too. We have the, exactly. We have the fossils, too. We all have the fossils. The fossils are all the same. What's different is the interpretation. Right. The interpretations differ because we have a different history. Right. We believe the evolutionists misinterpret those things. And a dead thing in a rock, a fossil, is, that's a fact. It's observed. Right. Everybody can observe fossils in rocks. And the question as to how it got there, that's an interpretation. Right. Or how old it is and, and all sorts of that. I mean, if, if you look at the example of we have, we have, recently a woolly mammoth was found. And, uh, and there was supposedly 10,000 10, years old. Yeah. And there was liquid blood still in this, uh, in this woolly mammoth. It's a recent discovery here. Right. And but now that shocked it, a lot of people. It, and they it, said, wow, did, you, yeah. know, you know, how could that possibly last? But, um, okay, well, it was in a frozen environment. Maybe it could last. But a little harder one recently. Uh, Recently, is they actually found a, uh, a salamander, and they found intact muscle tissue uh, in, in the in, in the specimen. Okay. And uh, this, this is uh, amazing: soft tissue, muscle, and blood. And here are some of the excerpts uh, from from the articles that uh, were put forth. It said we came across the muscle tissue during an analysis of several hundred fossil samples taken from an ancient bed in southern Spain. It was immediately identified by the sinewy texture visible under the microscope. We noticed that there had been very little degradation since it was originally fossilized about 18 million years ago, making it the highest quality soft tissue preservation ever documented. And then they said the muscle tissue is organically preserved in three dimensions with the circulatory vessels infilled with blood. Well, wait a sec. There's an observation that we're making that doesn't fit with millions of years. But yeah. anyway. So we had the 10,000-year-old mammoth. Then we had the 18-million-year-old salamander. Right. And then, of course, there's Dr. Schweitzer's uh, T-Rex blood cells. And Hadrosaur, the T-Rex was a famous T-Rex, Dr. Schweitzer, and so on, 70 million years. And then an 80-million-year-old Hadrosaur. That's right. And there's, there's other dinosaur soft tissue that have been found since that time. Right. So what we're pointing out here is that we all have the same facts, but right. some of those yeah. facts facts don't really seem to fit with evolution <laughs> and so why are they always talking about well you know ours is facts based and, and, and yours isn't well we're all using the same facts to uh, to uh, promote what we believe of course and then the words of leading philosopher and historian of science uh, professor uh, Marjorie Green are, are very apt here and she said this about Darwinism she said that uh, um, it's a religion of science that Darwinism, uh, that Darwinism chiefly held and holds men's mind. Darwin, Darwinian theory has itself become an orthodoxy preached by its adherents with religious fervor and doubted, they feel, only by a few muddlers imperfect in scientific faith. Public education is not a neutral ground right now, and uh, we're actually going to take a look at uh, some of the some of the very real evidences of that. An article in the UK's Independent featured on uh, July the 20th, 2012, titled... Teaching creationism, indoctrination is a form of child abuse. Right. Hmm. Well, uh, actually, the author in this piece said this. Real education is about open-ended questioning and challenging the mind. Blinkered, limited propagandist religious thinking attempts to hold back or stop that process. Brainwashing is a form of child abuse. It should have no place in any place of learning. We'll talk about a bunch of hypocrisy here. 
Yeah. Because, you know, basically you're saying, they're, they're saying, look, you're free to ask any questions you want. You can think for yourself. You can make up your own mind as long as you don't question our evolutionary propaganda that we're going to shove down your throat and not show you any other uh, alternative to. Yeah. So how can you have open-ended questioning, to, to borrow the phrase that we just read, right. if, if you're not allowed to ask questions about God or intelligent design or creation or maybe there's a designer, things like that's not open-ended questioning. Exactly. And that's exactly what this country has mandated in its, in its government-funded schools. In the UK. Yeah, yeah in, in its funding agreement, a new clause 24A states the following. The school shall not make provision in the context of any subject for the teaching as an evidence-based view or theory of any view or theory that is contrary to established scientific and or historical evidence and explanations. Okay, now, did, did you get what, uh, <laughs> what, what this is saying Did here? you see how open-minded that it, was? <laughs> what it's saying is that the evolutionists are demanding that only one story of origins can be taught and that no evidence can be brought against it. Right. How there, is there that could, education? Yeah, there, there could be heaps of evidence against it, but you're just not you're allowed, not allowed to bring it no. uh, against it. Now, this has been happening for a long time. CMI has shown the link between you know atheistic materialism and humanism and the theory of evolution uh, for a while. And, and humanists and atheists have seen public education as a great way to promote their religious views Absolutely. Uh, for a very long time. And I'll give you a quote here from way back in 1930. Charles Potter, in his book, Humanism, A New Religion, said this, Education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism, and every American school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic Sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of the five-day program of humanistic teaching? And atheists like John Dunphy have, even, have made a very bold stand, even bolder than that. Uh, for example, look at this quote from the official journal of the American Humanist Association. I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly view their role as the proselytizers of a new faith. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent, adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism. Right, so here, here we are, a clear example, Amazing. we just put teachers in schools, if they're atheists and humanists, yep. and now we get them as preachers of a new faith, right? You know, it was interesting, in the last U.S. election, I came across an article uh, in a Seattle newspaper from an English teacher, a college advisor at uh, Northeastern University in uh, Evanston, Illinois, Bill Savage. And uh, he, he, he revealed some interesting things. He said, you know, here in the United States, they've got Democrats and Republicans, kind of like uh, liberals okay. and conservatives, let's say. And he said it was no good. He, he himself didn't have any kids. And he said this is no good because the Republicans, the conservatives, outbreed us. They have more kids than we do. And they're going to teach them their conservative values. And then, of course, uh, we won't have re uh, democratic presidents. Oh, no. But he had a solution, and this is what he revealed. He said the children of red states will seek a higher education. And that education will very often happen in blue states. For the foreseeable future, loyal ditto heads will continue to drop their children off at the dorms. And after a teary-eyed hug, mom and dad will drive their SUV off towards the nearest gas station, leaving their beloved progeny behind. Then what he proudly claims... And then they're all mine. And he's got over a thousand hours a year to massage their little brains and put in what he thinks. What's happening in the news? Well, <laughs> the Huffington Post, Fox News, etc., there were many uh, 
different news agencies that covered an article. It said, you know, humans in 100,000 years, what will we look like? I can't help smiling. I know it's coming already. I know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, they started off with a picture of what we supposedly look like now. Here's a good representative of the human race. Okay, awesome. uh, Right here. That's great. <clears throat> I'll just read some of the different things that they commented on. Uh, they went through basically a timeline of how we're going to evolve into the future. Okay. And it said, modern-day humans may someday evolve to have larger eyes, more pigmented skin, and thicker eyelids, thanks to genetic engineering technology, and here's how they'll change. Um, wait a sec. First of all, um, we're going to get darker skin? W what about all the people on the planet that already have darker skin? <laughs> like, way darker than me or <laughs> you, for example. Yeah, the so, pictures here are white people that they put up. <laughs> yeah, why, why the Caucasians? Well, I mean, if you remember the old Ape to Man series, you always remember that we start off as dark-skinned, hairy apes and turn into Caucasians, uh, which is inherently a racist concept. Yeah, it is. Yep. And, and now here we're talking about future evolution where we're going to evolve dark skin. Well... Hmm. Folks, we already have dark skin. Um, oh, by the way, uh, interesting that this article came out when uh, just a little while ago I saw this article as well. Um, and it said, uh, evolution stops here. Future man will look the same, says scientist. And here was an article from a different scientist who had a completely different take on this. He said, no, 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 we're going to look exactly the same where, where we are in a million years. And totally contradicting this article. Yeah, but okay. Well, anyway. a little, little hard to have a crystal ball and, and well, do these it things. It shows you how loosey-goosey this concept is. But anyway, so 20,000 years, here's what we're supposed to look like now. Okay. And it said, uh, in 20,000 years, in a world where genetic engineering is commonplace and humans have established colonies in space, human knowledge of the universe will increase. And as such, the size of the brain will increase, uh, Dr. Alan Kwan theorizes. As a result, the human head will have to become larger to accommodate the larger brain size. Wow. That, that, so so if, if we read more books, will our heads get bigger? <laughs> Well, apparently, because the, as we get more idea? knowledge of the universe, then we're going to get well, wait a minute. bigger uh, Neanderthals, from you know, a group that we suppose, or that some people supposedly evolved from, they had bigger brains than we did. Right. So again, this is kind of going back, like the whole, the whole uh, very, pigmentation in the skin yeah, type very of thing. Yeah, very flip-floppy, isn't it? Okay, well, what are we going to look like in 60,000 years? Here we are. Oh, boy. This is supposedly real science, folks. Um, in 60,000 years, Dr. Alan Kwan states that after millennia of traveling through space, zygotic genome engineering will be used to create humans with larger eyes, more pigmented skin, and thicker eyelids. And this will be done in order to see better in the dimmer environment of space to shield humans from UV rays and alleviate the effects of low to no gravity like today's astronauts. Well, wait a minute. So here he's talking about, that's genetic engineering. He's right. talking about manipulating our genes to produce these things. So intelligently designed <laughs> evolution, it's which is not design. evolution Absolutely. at all. Yeah. Okay, well, you ready? Here we are, folks. Here we are in 100,000 years. We all look like little anime zwinky figures. 100,000 years from now, we believe that humans will have much larger eyes and the eye shine, and eye shine due to the tapetum lucidum, uh, lucidum, a layer of tissue behind the retina of the eye. Wow. So That's we're going to look like cats, you know, when you see them in the dark, their eyes shine and, right. and things I mean, like that. Th there are articles written by evolutionists that are, that are very intelligent, very well done, and then there's other articles that just don't work. They're plain silly is what they are. This is a great example of evolutionary storytelling. Creation Magazine Live is a production of Creation Ministries International, the publisher of Creation Magazine and the minds behind creation.com. 
If you want to chip in to support our ministry, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening.